discipline of confession. Now, I realize like all of the other disciplines, you probably have in your mind a mental image about what confession is. Perhaps some of you grew up in a Catholic setting. And so when I say confession, you picture yourself going into that confessional booth and spilling the beans about how you hit your sister or how you lied to the person, to your local priest. That's your idea of confession. Uh, I have a very vivid memory, early memory of confession. It happened when I was in middle school. I may have already shared this story before, but it's left a mark on me because when I was at a youth camp, one of our youth leaders decided that it would be a good idea to say, let's do an open mic time of confession with the whole youth group. Now, this was about 300 teenagers at the time. It was me and 300. He does an open mic. He says, if you need to confess something, come up. Now, I'm not saying open uh, uh, confession in public. We're going to talk about what it means to confess your sins to others. But the problem was that certain students got up and they began to confess lust toward other students in the youth group. So they began to say, I confess I've lusted over this person. That person's like... Not a good idea. Brian, Esther, let me just encourage you, do not practice that with our youth. That is not a great idea. Open my confession. I don't know what your view of confession is, but thankfully, the scriptures are full of examples and teaching on the spiritual discipline of confession. I find 1 John 1 to be one of the most helpful texts in all the scripture because it tells us two things. Number one, it tells us that we are to practice confession. It specifically commands, you need to confess your sins. But number two, it tells us why confession is important. It gives us the reason, the why behind this spiritual discipline of confession. So as we look at this, first John, you need to understand, is a letter written by John to a people that he is trying to help discern whether they have an actual relationship with God or not. Some of the people in this group that he's talking to, they're struggling. Do I really know the true God? And so he comes alongside them. By this point, John was a a pillar in the early church. He had walked with Jesus. His life had been radically changed by Jesus. And so he knows the difference in religious activity and a real vibrant relationship with God. And so throughout this text, what he does is he highlights the characteristics of a person that has fellowship with the true God. And isn't it interesting, one of the very first characteristics that he highlights is a person that knows the true God will regularly practice the discipline of confession. They will regularly confess their sins. As he teaches on this, he approaches the topic from a different angle than you or or I might expect. He doesn't jump in and just say, you've done everything wrong, so confess. Instead, he grounds this discipline of confession and who God is. He points to the character of God. And this morning, what he wants you to understand is that if you know God, the true God, if you understand his characteristics, if you believe certain truths about God, confession will automatically become a natural discipline in your Christian life. It will become something you regularly do. If you would, look with me at verse 5. John says this, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we asked the question this morning, why should we confess? Why do we as God's people confess? It starts with understanding this one basic characteristic about God, that God is holy. He is holy. 
When John says God is light, what he is pointing to is the holiness of God. Now, we talked about this attribute of God pretty at length in our study of 1 Peter, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But when he says God is light, what he is saying is he, God is the total opposite of darkness in all of its forms. When the scriptures talk about darkness, really what it's talking about is moral darkness, injustice, hypocrisy, uh, hatred, pride, un- impurity. He's talking about sin in all of its different forms. And so when he says that God is light, what he is saying is God cannot live alongside darkness. He cannot, he will not tolerate sin in any form because it's who he is. He is 100% light. I think some of us get confused thinking that, that God is kind of like uh, the forest in the Star Wars. It's the, that God is the balance between good and evil, holding them together, kind of like yin and yang. It, that is not the God of scriptures. God is 100% light. He is 100% good and pure in all he is and all that he does. He grounds this in the holiness of God. He is a God who is opposed to darkness wherever it is found, even when it is found in us. Now, if you think about that very long, you will quickly realize that this view of God is not very popular in our modern culture. It's not. If you think about it, the popular view that you oftentimes hear about God is what? God is nothing but love. He's nothing but love. And then they go on to define love in a way that is in opposition to holiness. A love that just embraces whatever it is that needs to be embraced. The modern culture wants a God who has no standard for sin. Who doesn't really think sin is a big deal. Especially when it comes to our sin. But from the very beginning, John says no. The number one characteristic of a person who truly knows God is that they accept God for who he really is, a God who is holy, that will not tolerate sin. He will not and he cannot tolerate uncleanness, impurity of any kind. He is 100% light. Throughout the scriptures, whenever anybody in the scripture gets even a glimpse of God's holiness, you see the same thing happen over and over again. You see one of these examples in Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah gets a picture of a glimpse of the holiness of God. If you would, I want you to see it. It's going to be on the screen. Isaiah chapter 6, starting verse 1. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. (coughs) And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So again, Isaiah is getting a glimpse of the holiness of God. Just a glimpse. What happens? And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Later in Isaiah chapter 64, you hear him say this. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. 
Now realize that this is Isaiah, one of the greatest prophets. He was used by God in an unbelievable way. And yet, what does he say? He says, when I saw God, when I got a glimpse of his holiness, my automatic response was not awe and adoration, was it? It wasn't that I lifted my hands or I clapped or I fell. What does he do? He confesses. When he sees God's holiness, he can do nothing else than to fall to his knees and say, woe is me. For I am lost. I am an unclean person. Even my greatest works of righteousness, even my giving at church, even my good works, even the way that I help the needy, even all of these things are but filthy rags compared to your holiness. And he just had a glimpse. When we see God's holiness, we cannot help but fall in confession. We confess because God is holy. But second, as we see in Isaiah, we confess because we are unclean. When we are brought into the light of God's holiness, what that does is it reveals what's really within us. And that's hard for some of us to fathom. It's hard for us to fathom that there's actually darkness within us that is in opposition to God. But that's exactly what happens when you really know God. The more you know of God, the more you know of his character, the more you know of his holiness, the more darkness you see both in you and around you. That's what happens. You find Romans 3 to be true when it says, there is no one who is righteous. No, not one. In comparison to God's holiness, we all fall short of that standard. And this, friend, should drive us to confession. Really, when it comes down to it, that word confess, it means to agree with God. It means to agree with God that we have done things that he told us not to do in his word. It means that we agree with God that we have not done things that he did tell us to do in his word. We agree with God that many of our actions, that our behavior, that our words are actually in opposition to him, in opposition to his holiness. That is what it means to confess to agree that God's judgment is right. So then what does little or no confession in our life reveal? That's an important question. Because John warns us here, he says, here's the thing, where there is little or no confession, where there is little or no walking the light of God's holiness, what does he say? You better be very careful about boldly stating you have a real relationship with God. If you truly know God, you cannot help but see that he is light and that we need to bring ourselves into his light because we are darkness. Uh, He gives two reasons that people will not see their need for confession. If you look at it, look at verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In essence, what he's saying is that some people do not confess sin very regularly because in their heart, they don't really think that their sin is that big of a deal. They don't think that their sin really matters that much to God. They don't think that their their lifestyle that is in opposition to God really impacts their relationship with him. Now, maybe you would not say that out loud. You wouldn't say, I don't think my sin matters to God. But here's the thing. How many of you have convinced yourself that God doesn't really care about those little white lies you tell to get ahead at work. Or that God doesn't care about your sex life outside the boundaries that he has given, the good boundaries of marriage. How many of you have convinced yourself that God does not care about that, that secret habit on the internet? 
or that God does not care about your, your anger that you constantly let out towards your spouse or the uh, selfishness that you let out towards your kids. How many of you had convinced yourself, my, my uh, gluttony or my drunkenness or, or whatever it is, these things do not really impact my relationship with God. They don't really grieve him. I can live however I want, and it doesn't really do anything with my relationship with God. It's so easy to try to convince ourselves of these things. But what these verses reveal that if walking in moral darkness describes your life, if there is no conviction of sin, if there is no sorrow over your opposition to God, then we need to be very careful and confidently saying that we even know him. God is 100% light. Therefore, if we walk in darkness, how can we state that we know him? Friend, I wonder if that describes you this morning. You have been living in such a way that is in opposition to God. Maybe you didn't even realize that I was living in opposition to God. We all do it. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. If that's you this morning, the answer is to walk into the light. Not to run from the light, but to walk in it. In verse 7, what does he say? But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He says, walk in the light. If we walk in the light, then Jesus' blood cleanses us from our sin. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. But before we do, let me just point out one other thing. Another kind of person that will not see their need for confession. Look at verse 8. It says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So whereas the first person didn't believe their sin mattered to God, they didn't think it was that big of a deal, the second person doesn't really see they have sin at all. Uh, Maybe they have excused their sin or maybe they, they blame others for their sin. Or perhaps they really believe I have attained sinless perfection. I'm perfectly fine before God. I have no sin. Either way, what does John say? That if we believe we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we have deceived ourselves. I think far too many of us think that spiritual maturity is a lack of sin. Where we think and we put off this picture that we are perfect. Friends, that is not a picture of maturity. I want you to write this down. The clearest sign that you are growing in your relationship with God is not sinless perfection but that you are more aware of how much sin pervades your heart and you're honest about it. You want to know what maturity in the Christian life looks like? You have an increasing awareness of your sin. I think far too many Christians, especially in the church, we walk around with these fake facades like we have no sin. In our relationships, in our community groups, and even our friendships, those we're close with, We act like we aren't having struggles. We act like we are not sinning. We we say we have no sin all the while in our hearts. We know that that is not true. That is, friends, that is not walking in the light. To walk in the light means that we make all of ourselves very open to God's holy glaze, his look upon us. That we open our lives to that. I think about it this way. Imagine I tell my son Brady, he's eight years old. I say, Brady, I want you to go in your room and clean your room before you go to bed. The room is utterly dark. The light's out. Now, it would be very easy for Brady, would it not, for him to go and to look in that room that is utter darkness and look around and say, I'm good. The room's clean. He can't see anything. It looks great to me, right? It'd be very easy for him to do that. But what happens when I strike a match? 
I give that to Brady and I say, hey, I want you to go back and I want you to clean your room. Well, quickly with that little match, he's going to see I was wrong. There actually is a little bit of a mess in my room. But even then with a match, how much of a mess can you see? Very little, right? So I give him a flashlight. He sees more of the mess in his room. And then finally I turn on the light. What's going to happen? Brady's going to be like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be here for an hour. My whole room is a mess. Well, friends, think about this. God is light. Which means this, the more you have of him, the more mess you are going to see. The closer you get to God, the more you're going to realize, oh, there's this and then there's that. And then all of a sudden he's going to show you the sins beneath the sins. Oh, it's not just that I'm angry at my spouse. I'm actually really bitter or I'm prideful or I'm selfish. The more you know God, the more you walk with him, the more you're in prayer and in scripture, the more you begin to see the real mess that you are. This is what happens when we bring ourselves into the light of God's holiness. He is light. If we're honest, sometimes God's light can be wearisome, right? You, 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 you're fighting against one sin and you're walking with him and you're drawing close to him. All of a sudden he shows you another thing that you need to apply to your life. Well, friends, Hebrews chapter 12 tells us to not be weary when reproved by him. Why? Because he reproves those that he loves. The reason God in his holy character reveals our sin is because he knows that it is our sin that is keeping us from our greatest joy. He wants to reveal those things. He can do no other. God is light. He is in opposition to darkness, which means he will limitlessly oppose sin wherever it is found in our hearts. And that is good. It is for your good and his glory. We confess because God is holy. And we also confess because we are unclean. But friend, this morning it is important that you don't stop there. Because here's the thing. If you only believe that God is holy and you are unclean, it's going to be a very miserable confession. Why? Because all that's going to happen is judgment. If there's no way to bring cleansliness, to cleanse us of our sin, if there's no forgiveness, then, then that is a very, uh, very hard sense of confession indeed. But thankfully, John doesn't stop there. Look at verse 9. What does he say? If we confess our sins, he, being God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, we confess because God is holy. Yes, we confess because we are unclean. But friends, we confess because God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. See, I love that. God is faithful. You think about this. At every point we have been unfaithful, God was faithful to us. You go from the very beginning of, of, of sin with the Adam and Eve in the garden throughout the Old Testament. What did God promise? He promised that he would provide the solution for our darkness. That he would provide the solution for the darkness around us. The sin that separates us from a relationship with him. That he would provide that. In Jeremiah, he promised a new covenant that he would establish that would cleanse us of our sin. That he would remember our sin no more. Well, friends, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he came through on that promise. If you want to know why we call the gospel, call it the gospel, it's good news. It's because God has done everything that is necessary for us to be forgiven of our sin. 
Think about this. When you go to God in confession, you need to know that you are coming to a God who loves you so much that he did everything that was necessary for you to be cleansed of your sin. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to absorb the wrath that our sin deserved. Jesus voluntarily gave his life on the cross to take the punishment that each one of us deserve, not just for sin in general, but he said for sins, for every specific sin, past, present, and future that you have committed. Jesus took the righteous, just punishment for that sin. God has been faithful to us. He has provided what is necessary. He knew that we could not uh, do enough good things to get rid of all that sin that, that we had stored up in our heart. We couldn't do enough things to work it off. God provided the way. He is faithful. But also, what does it say? That he is just. Now, for a long time, I wondered, how does that fit here? Have you ever thought about that? That God is just. How does God's justice bring comfort in the midst of my confession? Well, read chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 with me. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is amazing. In essence, what John is saying is this. Not only does God's incredible love for us and what Jesus has done for us on the cross, not only is that the greatest motivation not to sin, because when we see his love, we don't want to grieve him. We don't want to go against him after we see what he's done for us. But not only that, he says, but when we sin, as it will happen in every single one of our lives, when we sin, what does he say? We have an advocate. What does that word advocate mean? We've talked about this many times. Advocate is not someone that is just for you, although it includes a sense of that. Advocate is a legal term. It's a legal term for a person that literally stands before us and pleads our case before the judge. Now, when you think about that, As a Christian, what John is saying is if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have turned from your sin, if you are a Christian, someone who knows the real, true, living God, you have an advocate in Jesus Christ. Well, what is he he pleading? What's the case he's making? This is so important. He's not making the case, well, Ryan was a really good person. He really tried his best, right? We've already seen my righteous works My best works are nothing but filthy rags in comparison to God, right? So it can't be that he's pleading my works in that moment. That wouldn't give me any comfort. Here's what also he's not pleading. He's not saying, God, just give him one more chance. Just give Ryan mercy here. Give him one more chance. That's not what Jesus does. What does it say in the text? That Jesus is our advocate. He is advocating on our behalf, not based on our works, but his work. You see, Jesus, when he's pleading our case, he's not pleading our works. He's saying, this is what I have done. I have lived the perfect life that meets God's holy standard. And not only that, I have voluntarily suffered the punishment of death for sin, God's wrath. I've taken that upon myself so that Ryan doesn't have to, so that Ryan can be cleansed, so that Ryan can be declared righteous forever. That is Jesus's case before the Father. 
And if that were not enough, you find that it was the Father's plan the whole time. That he would send his son to accomplish that on our behalf. Friends, this is amazing. We confess, yes, because God is holy, because we are unclean, but we confess because we have a God who has done everything necessary for us to boldly enter his presence because we have in front of us the work of Jesus Christ. We need to understand these truths about God if we are going to rightly enter into confession. This is the assurance of the gospel. Tim Keller memorably put it this way. He said, you are simultaneously worse than you ever imagined and more loved and accepted by God than you ever dreamed. That's the assurance of the gospel. You're worse than you hoped. You see yourself in light of God's holiness. You're worse than you ever hoped or or, or than you ever dreamed. But God is greater than you could ever imagine. He has done everything that we need. I'm afraid some of you in this room this morning only have a picture of God's holiness. You've gone halfway on this whole thing. You only have a picture of God's holiness and the result is that you're sitting here and you can never actually believe that you are truly forgiven, that you are truly righteous, that Jesus' work was truly enough for your sins. And so you sit in this room with guilt and shame from all sorts of sins, past and present. You sit here and you think, God can't love me. He cannot forgive me. Friends, you may have a holy God, but you have not come to understand that he is both faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. You need to know this morning that you have an advocate. It is not about what you have done. It is about what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection that secures your forgiveness. Would you please live in that freedom this morning? There's nothing more free than to know the freedom that comes in forgiveness. But I'm afraid there are others of you in this room on the opposite side. You're always pointing out God's love and your faithfulness, but you totally disregard his holiness. You think, I can live my life however I want to live. I can sin and I can keep my sin hidden, which again, just breeds more sin. Hidden sin breeds more sin. That's what happens. I can do all these things. I can walk in darkness and it really doesn't grieve God at all. Friend, you need to hear today that God, yes, he's faithful and just to forgive you, but God is also a holy God. You need both of these. God is holy. He is faithful and just if we are to confess as God has called us to confess. As we move toward closing this morning, let me just give you a few practical guidelines that you see in scripture about confession. As you enter into it over these 21 days, you may wonder, Ryan, what should my confession look like? I understand why. I understand my need for confession, but what should it look like? Well, let me just give you three very simple principles. Number one, we need to confess our sin without qualifications. Here's what I mean by that. When you go to God to confess your sin, or when you confess your sin to another person, God may lead you, say, Ryan, you've confessed to me, but you need to confess to the person you've hurt, right? When you confess your sin, here's what I'm saying by without qualification. I mean, don't make excuses. Don't try to blame others. Don't water down your confession. Instead, what I mean is when you confess your sin, own your sin. To confess means I agree that what I have done is in opposition to God. And it's also oftentimes in opposition to other people. We need to own that. One of the greatest examples of this is the the son who squandered away uh, his father's wealth, the, the parable of the prodigal son. 
after he hits rock bottom, what does he say? He says this, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Listen to that confession. I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. He does not blame his youth or his immaturity. He doesn't blame his influences. What does he say? I have sinned. You see, the same thing happened to King David when God brings to light his sin with Bathsheba and then eventually the killing of her husband to try to hide the whole thing. God, through the prophet Nathan, brings this to David's attention. And what does David do? He cries out in confession. Psalm 51, if you write that down this week, sometime go to it. Psalm 51 is an incredible picture of true confession. And this is what David says. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. What is David saying? I have sinned and your judgment of my sin is right. He owns his sin. Now compare that with some of the confessions you sometimes make to God and to others. I would imagine if your confessions sometimes look like mine, you, you go to that person that you've heard or you've done something against and you say something like this. Hey, I just want to say I'm sorry if there's something I did that offended you. Any of you confess kind of like that sometimes? What is that saying? Really what that's saying is, I'm not really sure I did anything that wrong. You're probably overreacting, but in order to fix this whole thing and make you happy, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm sorry. Do you think that's going to bring any true change? No, right? That is not biblical confession. Or how about this confession? I think sometimes we do this one a lot. Hey, I'm sorry for my anger towards you, but I was really tired. (laughs) Or I'm sorry for my anger towards you, but my boss, they were a bear today at work. What is that saying? Yes, I might have done something wrong, but it's not sin because my circumstances justify my behavior, right? We we excuses, we shift the blame, we water down our confession. When we sin, we need to own our sin. We need to say, God, I have sinned against you. When we have sinned against someone else, we need to say very specifically, I have sinned in this way. And that leads us to number two, confess your sin, not only without qualifications, but confess it specifically. If you look at this text, you'll notice, what does it say? Confess your sins. It doesn't say just be very generic, confess your sin. It says confess your sins in the plural. When we confess, we need to confess specifically. It's very important that we don't just say, God, um, I, I really confess that I'm prideful. No, go into your heart. In what circumstance did you reveal your pride? What did you say? What did you do that, that revealed the pride of your heart? That's what you need to confess before God. The reason this is so important, please hear this. If we do not confess sin specifically, It makes it very hard to battle that same sin when it comes up again. If at the end of the day we just say, God, I'm sorry that I was selfish, that doesn't do anything. But when I say this, God, I'm sorry that when I came home, instead of serving my wife and my son and my two daughters, I decided that I, my own self-interest was more important, that I deserve to rest. God, I'm sorry for that selfishness that I showed toward my kids and my wife. Then the next time it comes up, what do you think is going to happen? I'm going to recognize it. But if I just say, God, I'm sorry for being selfish, we miss so much of this. Jesus did not die for just sin in general. He died for your sins. 
past, present, and future. We need to confess specifically. Last but not least, I would say this. We need to confess your sin to others. Now, again, I'm not saying that we're going to do an open mic here in just a moment as a time of response. It's not what I'm saying, but I will say this. It is very, 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 very important that you have at least a few people in your life that you are very honest with about your struggles and sin. It is so radically important that you do not hide your sin from everybody else. Why? Well, number one, Scripture tells us to do this. James 5.16, he says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The reality is there are going to be moments where you've confessed to God, but you don't really believe you're forgiven. You've confessed it over and over and over again, but you still feel guilt. You still feel shame. Friend, this is the moment where you need to bring your sin, not only into the light of God's holiness, but bring it into the light of another trusted brother or sister in Christ. Here's the thing. When you do so, what does it say? You will be healed. There is a healing that happens when we bring our sin into the light. I can promise you, I've experienced this personally. You could talk to a number of Christians who for a long time harbored sin. Finally, they got it off their chest and they shared it. And all of a sudden they said, I'm free. I'm healed. It doesn't mean you're never going to struggle with sin again. But there's an amount of freedom from guilt and shame that comes when we bring it into the open. And a trusted brother or sister in Christ says, remind yourself, you are forgiven because of the work of Christ. We need one another to battle sin. We are not meant to do this alone. Here's the thing. When you hide your sin, really what you're destroying is all the fellowship in this church. If you don't believe me, think about it. If you put on this facade that you do not struggle with sin, that person next to you is going to look at you and think, well, they have it all together. What's wrong with me? And what are they going to do? They're going to hide their sin. And then that next person is going to hide their sin. But when we do the opposite, it's amazing what happens. If you've ever been in a small group, when one person finally breaks down, they say, look, I am struggling with this. I've been sitting with guilt and shame for years for this. All of a sudden, what happens? Not only do they encourage one another and pray for one another, all of a sudden their friend says, you know what? I too have been struggling with this. I've been struggling with this. Transparency breeds transparency. Darkness breeds darkness. As a community of faith, we need to be a people who confess our sins to one another. Maybe in this 21-day journey of prayer and fasting, that's the thing that you need to do. You need to meet with one or two other Christians, and you need to be honest and open about your sin. You need to hear from them, God has forgiven you. You need one another in this battle. Friends, God is holy. We are unclean. But he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us then press on in making confession a very normal part of our life. Think about it. We have everything to gain from this. And the only thing we will lose is what? Our pride. We need to be a people of confession. I'm going to leave you with words we're going to sing in just a moment. It's a new song and the lyrics say this. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. May we believe that and confess our sin together.